Amen. Thank you. John had an emergency work call this weekend and wasn't able to get out with some of us. And so we told him that we love him, we missed him, and we volunteered him for everything that came up. And so, <laughs> out of love. Hey, kids, if you are here, and parents, let me say this to both of you. Parents, we are encouraging you to keep your kids in church with you, that you would have them, they would grow up next to you and worship with you, but not everybody wants to do that, that's okay. We also have classrooms, and so you as families get the choice to choose uh, as we encourage you to do that, we also provide classrooms, so you have a choice. Kids, if you are going to go now, who are they following, Yvette? Jen, perfect. You can follow Jen Contreras right there. So kids, if you're going to go, that's you. This is your cue. You want to hang out with us? I'd like to have you. Hopefully your parents want to keep you too, all right? Cool. All right, well... Revelation chapter 6 is where we're going to be. If you would go ahead and get a Bible, if you brought one, great. If, the, if not, there's one under the seat in front of you. Revelation 6, I can actually give you the cheat. It is on, I don't mean cheat, we're in church. I can give you the shortcut. Yeah, maybe that's it. 1031, page 1031. Um, and then when you get there, I'm going to ask you if you would... When I kind of see some more eyeballs and not just people turning pages. So let me do this. In Revelation 6 today, we're going to see, again, more of what we've been talking about, the upper story, lower story. Now, what I mean by that is upper story. We see what God is doing in heaven. We see this kind of divine view of human history right now. Like right now, what God is doing, what Jesus is doing, what is going on, in the, in the space we can't see, we'll call that the upper story. And then there's what we can see, what you and I are going through here on earth, we call that the lower story. And Revelation is this, it is not future predicting, most of the book is not about the future at all, I would say. But it's about the upper story and lower story, it's about what has happened, what always happens, and if we live long enough, what will happen again. But it takes us from earth where Jesus is among the churches to the, to the churches and we get a snapshot of where these seven churches are that are receiving this letter called Revelation and, and five of those seven churches are suffering persecution. The other two, by the way, are not being obedient to Jesus so it's really not a wonder why they're not being persecuted. Those that are living for their faith, they are. And so we see that and then we get called up to the upper story. And John gets a glimpse into heaven around the throne where God is being worshipped. And then God is holding a scroll, this plan of redemption with seven seals on it. And, and, and heaven waits as they look for who can open it. And it says no one is worthy. And John breaks and cries. But then it says I saw a lamb standing looking as if he had been slain. He sees Jesus and, and, and the marks of his death, and yet he is very alive, reigning in heaven. And Jesus is the one worthy to open the plan of redemption, the scroll with seven seals. Today, we're going to see the words come, and, and we're going to be called back down into the lower story, and we'll go back and forth. So when we look at Revelation, don't think future, it was written to seven churches that needed to hear it right there, right then. And it's written to us, or it's preserved for us, so that we can hear it right here, right now. I'm going to ask you to stand. I want to read a passage with you, please. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read this. This is Matthew chapter 24. This is Jesus speaking. We're going to see in line one, he's speaking to his disciples, and so... It says, and he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Next slide. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But, now hear this, generations, the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Next slide, please. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are about the beginning of birth pains. 
Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray, because lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Listen to that last part. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. That's the only future part Jesus is talking about way back in Matthew 24. He's like, all is going to happen to you. And then, then the gospel is going to go forward to all nations proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus says this during his earthly ministry, just before he is betrayed and goes to the cross. As he sits with his disciples, and he asks a question we all ask, or we hear commonly asked. Hey, what's going to happen next? <laughs> he says, don't worry about it. Who you are and what you endure is what matters. And then the gospel will go forward through you. And then the end will come. Generations Church, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Revelation chapter 6 is a parallel to this. And so those very words we just read, I want to I want to look at just a couple of them. I want to give us some grounding in Matthew 24. Same speaker, it's Jesus. And we see right here who he's writing to. Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, so Jesus is speaking to his disciples privately, right? We got that? Okay, you guys are all asleep. We got that? Yeah. Oh, good. Thank you. All right. Didn't want to have to start over. We have to stand you all up again. John will have to come back up and pray. And by the way, I can't encourage you enough to take notes through this. As we look at some of these things that have meaning that pop up in each chapter, it's nice to refer back and go, what was that again? Right? So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Let me have the next slide, please. And Jesus' biggest concern is not outlining a map or a chart or a graph about how the end will play out. Here's his big concern, verse 4, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will lead many astray. Like, listen, don't worry about how it all plays out, worry about today and tomorrow. Because people are going to come in, and they're going to try and lead the church astray, they're going to try and say they're me and change the message. You don't listen, you know better. And then he says what is absolutely not signs of the end, verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. He says, see that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but not the, this is not the end yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of birth pains. He's like, when you hear this, don't panic. That always happens. That's not the end. Right? Growing up. I can just think of each era and how many wars and famines we hear about and earthquakes because we live in Southern California. We just call that a Tuesday, right? And wars and rumors of war. That, but every time you hear this, you hear somebody, oh, the end is coming. Well, the end is always coming. But no, we're not because of that, right? And then it says this, and I want you to hear what Jesus says will absolutely happen to his disciples that are standing right there with him. He says this, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That is amazing sales pitch for discipleship, right? So it's going to look like this. They're going to kill you and hate you just because you follow me, right? But he told everyone standing there, this is what's going to happen. And to everyone standing there, guess what happened? They all gave their life for their faith as they went into the nations to proclaim the gospel to the world, they hated them for it. And all of those standing there listening to Jesus gave their life. 
Of course, not Judas who betrayed Jesus and took his own life, but all those who remained faithful gave their life for their faith. Now, this is how Jesus kind of wraps it up, verse 13 and 14. But to the one who endures to the end will be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. He says, here's what's going to happen, my disciples. You're going to be killed for your faith. People are going to hate you. You will give your life for your faith. All kinds of tribulation, suffering stuff's going to happen. But the gospel's going to go to the world, maybe in spite of that, maybe even driven out by that. And the gospel's going to proclaim, be proclaimed to the whole world. Jesus says, and then the end will come. You can hear how much he underplays, then the end will come. This is not about that. We're not supposed to be watching the news media and figuring out, does this fit into this? He's like, hey man, life's going to be tough following me. But even in the midst of that, and sometimes even because of that, the gospel will advance. And the gospel will advance to all nations because that's the value, that's the goal. That's what's most important. And I want you to hear as he says this to the disciples, what is not most important was his disciples' comfort. Thank you. So, <laughs> one amen. Okay, so here's what's not most important then. Our comfort. That is not more important than the gospel reaching the nations. Are you with me? That the gospel taking root in the world is far more important than what you or I might need to endure in the meantime, knowing we are guaranteed forever with God in perfect union and harmony with him. So for a little while, we are called to overcome this world. So here's a main idea today. The scroll and the seals. The scroll and the seals represent redemptive history here on earth. If you're unfamiliar with what that means, I just mean the time between Christ's first and second coming. That is redemptive history. The moment Jesus came to bring redemption, came to bring the gospel, and the time he returns where it is all complete and consummated. Paralleling Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24. We've been saying this all along. There's nothing new in Revelation. There's nothing that exists in Revelation that isn't said somewhere else in Scripture. It may be sandwiched together in one place differently, but nothing is new. Jesus already said all the things we're going to hear today, it's just going to be said in a bit of a different way. And it echoes like Zechariah, the prophet, who talks about the four horsemen, and Ezekiel, who talks about the four riders on horses. And it's, it's going to echo those things but it's going to follow the very clear teaching Jesus gave his disciples. This isn't new to John, the beloved, who is writing this. So Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says this, Now I, John, as he's up in heaven, caught up with what is being shown to him, he says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. Now again, I've been encouraging you. I haven't sent out a, a dozen or more text messages this morning so the guys that were in different men's groups or discipleship groups or whatever, bring a notebook, right? Make sure, like, there is so much that's going on, and I remember this last week as we were going through things, and we covered two chapters because it's all one scene with no break. You can't pause and define everything, and, and something that might be hard to understand that you've already spent five, ten minutes in a different message, understanding what that is, like the seven spirits of God, which is just referring to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's relationship to these seven churches that are being written to, which we covered in chapter one. We can't, constant, we can't always stop and cover that. And I get it, you may be here for the first time, and we want you to catch all that we can, but for those of you that come each week, a notebook capturing some of these things so that when we say the Lamb... And the four living creatures, you're like, I'm tracking with you, right? Like, I get where we are in the story because there's a cast of characters, if you will, in this apocalyptic writing 
This is very heavily image-driven, and it kind of takes, takes a bit of a scorecard sometimes to keep up. You've got to remember, okay, the four living creatures, they're heavenly beings that are around the throne that are worshiping. Okay, one of them just talked. Okay, where are we? Here we are. So let me read that again. Now, I watched the Lamb, that's Jesus, who, as he opened one of the seven seals on the scroll in God's hand, talking about redemptive history, right? And I heard one of the four living creatures, those unique creatures around the throne who worship, say with a voice like thunder, come. See, we're invited from this upper story down again to the lower story. And today, we're going to kind of circle back and forth. And, and what's what Revelation does a lot of is kind of cycles through. It's a cyclical book. In other words, it works us back and forth. And it's kind of like saying, hey, what is going on right here, right now? And then what is going on that we can't see that God is doing, that the angels may be doing, that Jesus is doing right now, or that we're going to see the, the voices or the prayers of those who have died for their faith. We're invited into things we can't see, but then we're talking about how it applies to things that we can see. So we're called to come up and see the upper story. And now the, one of the four living creatures says, come, and we're back down on earth to the lower story. So upper story and lower story, they're, they're simultaneous. They take place at the same time. And not only is it cyclical like that, but the book of Revelation is written in cycles. It's not linear. For those of you that see it as linear, you're going to have a really hard time understanding Revelation 12 when Christ is born. You with me? Takes us all the way back 2,000 years ago. And so it's written in these cycles. And it's not intended to be linear. And it's written to churches that are suffering and dying for their faith. And the call to them and the encouragement to them, and the relationship of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and, and even his angels to them. And all of this was for them in their own day, just like Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 24. When we read it, we have to understand we're not in the story. What we do is learn from the story. We learn from what Jesus said to the seven churches through John, his last living disciple, who, by the way, has been arrested and beaten more times than we can count, who was boiled in oil so that they could kill him, but he lived. That's a fun day, right? And then, because that freaked them out when they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil and it didn't work, they exiled him on Patmos with criminals. So when he says... So when John says endure, he doesn't mean, you know, when they tell you to wear mask indoors, suck it up for the kingdom. He means when they come to take your life, it's okay. When they tell you, you can't work here unless you do this, and you say, I can't because that violates my faith, that I can't worship that, I, I must worship Jesus alone. He says, endure. That's the message. I know, I want to dance to the tune now. All right, so verse 1, see it again. All right, so now when I watched the Lamb open one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures with a voice like thunder say, come, verse 2. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. There are three kind of main ways people interpret this. I'm going to give you all three. I'm going to tell you which one I land on and why. I think we can eliminate one easily. Some see this as some form of antichrist kind of figure coming to conquer the church. And there's two reasons that can't be true. One is this is sent out by God and by the Lamb, right? So the Lamb is not going to send out somebody to fight himself, right? Okay, so that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And this conquering doesn't go out and conquer the church. In fact, none of these four horsemen go out and conquer the church. So another view is a human conqueror. And the Bible has this all over the place. If you were here back when we worked our way through the beginning of Isaiah, 
nation would be used to conquer another nation, or even the book of Daniel, where Babylon is used to conquer what is left of sinful Jerusalem and Judah. But then those nations are judged for what they did. And so people see, oh, maybe it's like conquering people, like military conquerors. Okay, fine. But others see this as Jesus himself, and I'm going to advocate for that position. And so what I would say is this is the rider on the white horse, which matches a description or similar to a description of Jesus in Revelation 19, Jesus on a white horse, right? Okay. But also sent out to conquer, sent out, came out conquering and to conquer. So he's sent out from heaven, again, eliminating something, an antichrist type figure, He's sent out from the Lamb. He's wearing a crown like the rider on the, right, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19 that we know is Jesus, because it says so. He's wearing a crown like that, and he's called to conquer. The language is he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, conquer has been used up until this point in Revelation, as we're in the beginning of chapter 6. It's been used nine times. It was used once just in the last chapter, in chapter 5, but it was used eight times in chapters 2 and 3, in fact, every single church, the seven churches, this is a letter to seven churches, right? Revelation is written. Jesus says, write this down, give it to the seven churches. These are seven churches that John actively cared for, and he would write letters to them. And in every one of those churches, in each church, they were told to conquer. I'm going to give you two right here. So Revelation 3, speaking to the church in Laodicea, it says, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Sound a lot like last week's throne message, right? As I also conquered, Jesus says, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Right? So to the church in Laodicea, that Jesus doesn't have a whole lot of nice things to say to, if you remember that. He said, if you don't change, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's not a good day, right? He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Like, I'm outside your church, and I'd like to come in. That's what Jesus says. But he says, to you who conquer, I will raise you up with me. If you overcome this world, you conquer, just as I have conquered, I will raise you up and set you on a throne just like I have been lifted up. Here's what Jesus says to the church in Sardis just before that. He says, to the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. Same line. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All seven churches are told to conquer. All seven churches are told in the plural. You have ears to hear. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so as we keep this conquering theme and we see this rider on a white horse that looks like Jesus in Revelation 19, I would say this is either Jesus himself or the gospel work of Jesus going forth on a horse. It can be anyone. I, actually, I don't think it can be the Antichrist. When it could be something human, but it doesn't fit. Like the other things are very specific, but it looks as if Jesus is riding out, the gospel is riding out to conquer See, the gospel message, we don't talk about the gospel message that way. It is, but we don't talk about it that way. In fact, unfortunately, over the last several hundred years, kind of the artwork and depiction of who Jesus is is more of a frail character, often laying in Mary's lap, right? It's Italian Renaissance work didn't portray Jesus as very masculine to begin with. The movies of the 70s that Jesus filmed didn't do any justice to him either, he looks white like he blow dries his hair. So not a super masculine image. So when we get to things like a rider on a horse set out to conquer, we don't, we don't hear that as our Savior. But see, the gospel is this, that God created you, loves you, designed you, made you, knows how you are to be, how you are to live. Your best life is not just a slogan on social media. It's how God created you. It's your ontological purpose, how you were designed to be. But we've all screwed that up. We've all made mistakes. We've all, we've all sinned. We've all, in fact, just, I want to go a step further, not just made mistakes, but we've all chose to do wrong. 
Christians in the room that call this church home, we know we've all done wrong knowing what it cost Jesus. So if you're new here, we do not think we got it all together. Again, with the same amen. Marcia and I, no, we don't have it together. Amen. All right, so all right, now, now you respond. But see, God wouldn't leave that alone. See, that separation between us and a holy God, a sinful humanity and a holy God, God wouldn't leave that alone. But see, we can never work our way up to God because we're broken, severed, dead in our sins. And so God became flesh, the, the Son of God, Jesus, the Word of God became human that he might come to us because a bridge had to be figured out somehow, but we couldn't do it. <clears throat> and so Jesus came in flesh and lived a sinless life, the life that you and I are called to live, but not just sinless, but lived a victorious life over sin and then gave his life. No one took it. Jesus gave it, laid down his life for us as a penalty, as a sacrifice, as an exchange. And then Jesus resurrected from the dead of his own power because he's God. There are cases where it says God raised Jesus from the dead in the New Testament. There are cases where it says the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And there are verses that say Jesus raised himself from the dead. So the Trinity, God in three persons, one God, resurrected Jesus in power. But see, when he rose from the dead, he was really fulfilling the oldest promise in all of Scripture. And that's when sin first entered into human history and God made a promise, and it says this, it's in Genesis 3. I've been using my notes, I've got to catch up. There it is, Genesis 3, all right. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, God is proclaiming this to Satan. He says, I'm going to put strife and struggle, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, between evil and humanity. He, meaning Jesus, in Genesis 3, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to look like you have a momentary victory when Jesus dies for three days, is laid in a grave. But when he resurrects, Jesus has victory. He conquers Satan, sin, and death. Yeah, that's good. You see, he does that on our behalf. He conquers that for you and for me. That we can live in victory over the world we live in. In other words, we can conquer Theologically, we call that Christus Victor, that Christ was victorious, but not just as a theme, as a part of the gospel that transforms us. So if you're here today and you're struggling, maybe you're in a dark depression, maybe you're struggling with an addiction, maybe you're in a relationship that you just can't seem to help fix, see, Christ is victorious. That's the gospel. So when I see a rider on a white horse with a crown and a bow conquering and coming to conquer, I see the gospel and I see our Savior on a horse going forth to conquer. And as you and I conquer this world, as you and I overcome sin, as we join the mission of Jesus to take the gospel to the next generation or to the neighbor next door or around the globe, if that's where God calls you to go then I see the gospel going forward and I see conquering taking place. I see Satan being defeated. I see sin being overcome and I see death no longer having victory over us. And so the rider on the white horse goes out. Here's a note for you. The conquering nature of the gospel, Christ's life, death, and resurrection was God's promise of victory over Satan, sin, and death. Christ, regenerate people, that's you and me, church. If you are in Christ, that's you. Regenerate means made spiritually alive. Christ's regenerate people are victorious because Christ is victorious. There's a beautiful verse in Romans that says this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? All things we've seen in Revelation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long as we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice what you're expecting in life as Paul writes to the church in Rome. 
tribulation, trials, struggles, maybe death, but also we conquer. That the gospel in us overcomes this world no matter how it plays out. Because in Christ we live and reign eternal. So we see a conquering rider. Verse 3, when he, meaning Jesus, the lamb, opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. So up in heaven now again, the upper story with the lamb, and then come back down to the lower story on earth. And it says, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. The second seal is broken. Another horse and rider comes out, this time on a red horse, bringing war to the world. He gave him the authority. Notice that it's delegated authority. Still, still God in charge. The Lamb has given authority. Jesus gives authority to take peace from the earth. Now this, this from the earth or those on the earth, this is going to become a theme that's going to start seeing play out. There are what's going on in heaven. There's Jesus. There's God. There's the angelic heavenly beings around that. There's the church. There are the martyrs who have died in faith. We'll see them in a minute. And there are those who dwell on the earth. One commentator just calls them earth dwellers. Those that are on earth that have no connection to heaven are just those on earth. And note what happens here. They are permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. This isn't a horse or a thing or war spiritually coming at them, at us. This is God giving authority to remove peace from the earth that humanity will begin to devour one another on earth. Sound familiar? If not, kick on the news, take about five minutes, read this, you're all set. Pick a channel, any channel. But notice that he is permitted to take, right? That is humans slaying others. And so, do we hear this and say, oh, that must mean the end of the world is coming? Well, no. Remember Matthew 24. You will hear of wars of rumor and worms of wars. This must take place, but it is not the end yet. And yet every time there is unrest in some geopolitical situation, it's the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. It is the world we live in. It's just the world. It's not the end of it. And people slaying one another means might be me or you. It's just that peace is being removed because people have rejected the one who is peace. And so the one who is in peace, who transforms us, he calls us to conquer this world no matter what. And so war breaks out on earth. Verse 5, when he, the lamb, Jesus, opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. Again, back up to heaven with the lamb, back down on earth, come. And here we are with the third one. And I looked and behold, I saw a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. This one leads definition. I remember reading through this and some of this is relatively obvious, and, and some is not. But this saying, a, a denarius for a quart of wheat or for three quarts of barley, and leave the oil and wine alone. Here's what it is. A denarius is a day's wage. So if you go out today, tomorrow, this is the Lord's Day. Hopefully you're not working today. Hopefully you get to rest and be in church and enjoy this, be with your family. Let's just say you get to go to work tomorrow. And you get up early, you do your best, you get out there, you kill it all day long right? Whatever your day looks like. At the end of the day, whatever that day was worth, what he's saying is you might get a meal out of it. See, famine comes here. If you have to work an entire day to pick up McDonald's, that's a problem, right? I filled it with gas this morning. It's a problem, right? What he's saying is you have to work a full day and you can't even feed your family, but then the oil and the wine, and there's a couple different thoughts on this that maybe it won't affect everything. Again, like gas prices might have gone up, but maybe something else remained the same, whatever. It could be like that. But it's more likely this. 
that when there's famine, the rich on earth seem to be less affected. Fair? Now, I'm not anti-being rich. I'm not rich. If you had lots of money and would like to make a donation, I'll tell you how to spell my last name for sure. I'll share it with you. All right, so sometimes some are affected and others are not. I think it leans that direction. Either way, it could be some things are affected or it could be just some people are affected. That's true, but famine breaks out in the earth. And I tell you how many times I remember growing up as a kid of which people group was enduring famine. That was the reason I had to finish my Brussels sprouts, right? Okay, I offered to mail them, but <laughs> famine is an occurrence. It happens. It's heartbreaking. We live in a world now where we should have the power to be a part of the solution, right? But you can't overcome the fact that God says there's going to be a famine, right? Can't beat that. I mean, you can't just overcome that. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, so Jesus opens the fourth seal, says, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Any tombstone fans? Remember this line? Opening scene of Tombstone, for the rest of you, don't tune out. I'll get back to the story. Opening scene of Tombstone, right? There's a wedding. Hispanic couple, Mexican priests, they're out there, and they're doing the wedding, and the cowboys with the red sashes ride up, and they're shooting up stuff, and kicking over things, and causing all kinds of chaos, and they kill the bridal party, and the priest, with tons of courage, begins to speak scripture over the cowboys, and what he quotes is this, he says, I saw a rider on a pale horse, and with him, and death was on him, and with him came Hades, right, he starts to say that in Spanish, and then, of course, one of the cowboys, Johnny Ringo, shoots the, <laughs> shoots the priest. And Wild Bill says, when you're in charge, even I'm worried, right? But what happens is there's this other cowboy, and, and, and Wild Bill says, what is he saying? And the other cowboy says, I don't know. He's talking something about a sick horse. And Johnny Ringo says, he's quoting Revelation. He says, your Spanish is as bad as your English. And he quotes this verse. That has nothing to do with today's story. That was just for the 10 of us that love that movie. That was amazing. All right. I saw you. All right. I'm with you, Matt. It's me and you. This verse is kind of misused, too, because at the end of this verse, it's actually misquoted. When the hero of the story shouts out, you tell him, I'm coming and hell's coming with me. Well, that's not what this is. You see, on this horse is death. And Hades, Hades is this Greek reference to being in the earth. Kind of like think being buried. Old Testament version for Jews would be Abraham's bosom. It's not hell. It's this idea of no longer being alive and being in the earth. And so here's what it says. Death is given authority to kill with either sword or famine or pestilence or whatever. Even wild beasts are like natural causes of the earth. Notice the focus of what's going on back down on earth. And so death is coming, and people will be buried, and they will be separated from their family, right? And they are not, it is not about hell. I will suggest to you that hell is coming later in the story and is not there yet. But to be dead is to be buried, and that's the reference. So death and Hades are coming on this horse, Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, so let's, let's, before we get there, so these famous four horsemen of the apocalypse, often very misrepresented, unless you're a Notre Dame football fan, okay, that goes back a ways, right? And so there are these famous figures that are coming, and we see the gospel going out to conquer on behalf of God, and we see judgment on the earth as well, we see war, we see famine, we see death, all being sent out and unfolded by the Lamb as a part of redemptive history. Now, here's what we don't get. Here's what we have a hard time wrapping our heads around. And, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I would suggest if we were born and raised in another country that was not 
America, that was not the U.S., that was not the freedoms that we have, I have a feeling we would understand this at minimum differently, if not entirely better. Because we don't understand when things don't go our way. We struggle with that. And, and so as Americans, when we come to faith, we add that. It's like, well, I did, Jesus, I did this. Like, why is stuff hard? He's like, did you not read the book? Because I said it's going to be hard. In fact, I'm going to cause some hard on the earth because the earth needs judgment. Because the earth needs to be driven towards a gospel. And some will die. And, and some Christians will die. And some others will die. And some others will starve. And some Christians will starve. And, and, and some others will lose their peace and go to war. And, and that's a part of the story. Between Jesus' coming and his return, he says, this is what happens. But the hope remains in the first horse that the gospel overcomes all this. And that if we have to endure all the rest of it, it's okay because the gospel overcomes all this. And so we lean into the gospel and know that the gospel going out is the primary value of God, that, that the kingdom advancing is God's cause, that we join the mission of Jesus. Alex said this earlier, talked about the Great Commission in Matthew 28, that we would go out and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we would teach them to obey what God has commanded us. And then his promise that he will be with us always. That hasn't changed, same commission. He's just saying, listen, you're going to do that in a hostile world. You're going to do that in a world that is against me, God speaking, or Jesus speaking. That a world is against God, that is a world that is against Jesus. And so when we're on team Jesus, it's going to be against us. But that's okay because the gospel conquers. The gospel conquers sin within us. It conquers death. It conquers Satan. So we can go forward in the gospel, see the kingdom advance. And if we suffer, we suffer. If we die, we die. If we don't, we don't. But we keep our priority joining the mission of Jesus. That's the four horsemen, the first four seals. Now, nothing shifts or changes. It's the same narrative. We're just going to the fifth seal, but the fifth seal has no horse. So listen, verse 9 when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, that would be a reference to the temple, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now we're invited to see and hear those who have given their life for their faith. Slain, we hear murdered, we hear violence. That they have given their life for the cause of the gospel. Now understand who, who's writing, John. John's writing. John's been arrested and beaten countless times. He's currently exiled on an island for criminals called Patmos. And that was because when Caesar came to kill him and boil him in oil, he lived. And it freaked him out and said, get him out of here. And all of John's closest friends have given their life for their faith. All of those that Jesus spent one-on-one -on -one time with intentional time with the disciples that he called and raised up and, and taught, even Paul, who he calls later in Acts 9, all have given their life in violent deaths for the sake of the gospel. So when John writes this, he writes this with a lot of perspective, with a lot of narrative and story and life experience that we don't have. And so when he hears of this upper story and lower story, he is seeing what God is doing when times down here feel like God is gone. Where is God in this moment? He's right here and he's unfolding redemption. And he's keeping us strong. And right now we even get a glimpse of as we, as we hear the voices of those who have given their lives for the faith. And that doesn't just mean those 11. I mean, there are millions of deaths that have given their lives for Jesus. We talked about some just a week or two ago. And there will be more in the future. Unless Jesus returns, there will be more. Because we're in that period of the church. We're in that period where tribulation is suffering. And the call to endure is now. Just like it was when Jesus looked at his disciples in the eyes. And he says, they're going to kill you. They're going to hate you for my sake. 
But your job is to go to the nations because the gospel's going out anyways. And no one can stop it. So verse 9. And he opened up the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. John sees two things in this fifth seal. He sees those who had been slain for one, the word of God, and for two, the witness they had borne. I want you to hear that. These people who were killed, who were slain, had two attributes that we know about. One, they followed Jesus. Because of the word of God, they lived different. And two, they told that story of Jesus. They passed that on to others, the witness they bore to others. See, it's not enough to know about Jesus and sit here and think, I'm just going to keep this really good gospel to myself, and, and I'm going to show up when I want to show up, and if I don't like the worship leader or the preacher, I'll come another week, or I'll go to another church. No, it's the, it's the when we say this transforms us, and we begin to live for that, and we do that collectively because we need one another, right? We've we got to walk this journey together because this journey is going to sound difficult, right? And in that, we become a witness to the watching world around us. Right, you guys know if you've been here any, any amount of time, you know my heartbreak for this, that COVID hit about three years ago and that the church was not distinct and different than the world. We missed our moment to be a place of rescue and peace. Instead, the church in America was just as politicized and divided as anybody else. We missed our moment that we could have been so much more we could have been those who were transformed by God and those who were good witnesses for the gospel. So our job is not to look backwards, but to lean forward and say, if there's something else coming, we're going to be ready. We're going to be different. We're going to be transformed. We're going to be ready to be a witness to the world we're in. And in the meantime, anybody who stands still, we're going to tell them about Jesus. They're in our lives. God has placed them there for a reason. We're on it. We want to be witnesses for Jesus. So these, these suffering saints or these soul, not suffering, that's not true. They suffered, now they're dead. And their souls cry out to God. So I want to put this note up before we hear what they say. It says, enduring hardship for proclaiming the word of God and being a witness of Jesus on earth is purposeful. Living for this world misses our purpose completely. Right? Same discipleship group. You get to week two after the Great Commission. Right? And Jesus came and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself right? And take up his cross daily and follow me. Come on, Chris, you got this, right? Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake will save it. We live for this world, we get, we, we get nothing. We live for the kingdom to come, we get everything. Well, we might die in this one, but it's okay. Because again, like the other verse, Jesus says, behold, I'm always with you to the end of the age. To the end of all this, I'm with you. So join with the voices of the martyrs. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Did you hear that? Who dwell on the earth, those who dwell on the earth, those who are persecuting your church. Is it right to want to see evil people judged? Yeah. Is it right to see evil and wickedness and want to see it purged and judged and, and, and penalized out of our world? Well, of course it is, right? If someone did something to one of you that I care about, I, want to, I would want to see that, I want to see justice meted out on that. And so the, the voices of the martyrs, the voices of those of, who died in their faith, gave their life for Jesus, they're crying out, first in worship, but secondarily, they say, how long, oh Lord, before those who persecute your church are judged for what they're doing? And those prayers rise up to God. So here's what we need to hear. This is the church era. This is the, this is the era we're in. Because the voices of the martyrs are still not resurrected with Jesus. Jesus has not returned yet. Suffering and tribulation is still going on on the earth. The church is still present. And those who have given their lives from the church cry out to God and say, How long, O Lord? How long until evil is judged here on earth? 
Verse 11, then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. To use a modern social media term, we are hearing the prayers of those who understood the assignment. They knew what Jesus had called them to do. They knew what it looked like. And they say, how long, O Lord? And here's what God says. Until everybody I have ordained to come to faith, until all of them have come, you remain. He says, just a little longer. Just a little longer. Until everyone of my sheep come home. You see, he gives a purpose for our pain. He gives a purpose for our struggle. He says, if I came and got you out of it all right now, we all have loved ones that don't know Jesus. And Jesus says, I have family that are out there. They're just not here yet. That famous quote by Julius Caesar when he was conquering the known world, he said, there's more of Rome out there. They just don't know it yet. See, there are more followers of Jesus out there They just don't know it yet. And so if we are to suffer a little longer, if we are to lose more, our loved ones, or whatever, as we long for the day that those who don't know Jesus would come to Jesus, that makes it worthy of suffering for. Now back up. I'll say Jesus is worthy of suffering for anyways. But a promise of that patient endurance until all have come home, it makes our sufferings seem worthy and purposeful. Just remember what Jesus told his disciples, right? 24, 13, the one who endures to the end who will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. Right? Revelation 3, like we read earlier, to Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed in white. And that's what happens. These prayers of the martyrs cry out. And they are clothed in white. It's shown as their righteousness. They must wait for the resurrection of the dead until Jesus returns. They must wait a little longer because we're waiting on all. All that God has said will come to faith, come to faith. So verse 11, when they were each given a white robe and told the rest a little longer, until the number of fellow servants of their brothers should be complete, that the, all the church, the big C church, would all be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There will be more martyrs. Verse 12. Then he, when he, Jesus, the lamb, opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. In case you were curious, that's the end. He says, we're waiting. And when that last one, in that last moment, when I say it's done, then that's the end, he says. And then we'll see the, we'll see the, we'll see the world fall into the ocean. And we'll see the sky collapse. Now, do I expect that to be literal? No, nothing yet has been literal. But this is repeating the imagery from the prophets like Zechariah and Ezekiel that have talked about these horsemen who have talked about the sky rolling up like a scroll and the earth falling into its water. It's using that prophetic image. Again, there's nothing new in Revelation. It's a collection of all those things put together that we might understand the message. Again, that we might understand the assignment that has been given to all of us, not just some, and not just those who are on the other side of the planet, but to all who profess Christ as king. Verse 12, when he opened the... Excuse me, I already did that one. So, I want to put this up. Here's that moment of judgment. Here's that. Here's what happens when we look. Okay, remember, this is cyclical. Not only is it upper story, lower story, upper story, lower story. Actually, in the sixth seal, heaven and earth collide, and all things are made new. But we are not told that yet. We're told about judgment on the earth for its sin. Before we get to the next part, I want to pause here, and I just want to to play this out for each of us. There's an amazing truth here. 
Christians endure hardship, suffering, and even death for our faith, but nothing stops the gospel from reaching every person ordained to salvation. Salvation going out to the nations is worth suffering for. If I have to give my life that others may know Jesus, I pray that I have the courage to do so. The chances of that happening here are slim but possible. But if that's the call, that's the call. And I pray that if something tragic happens again, I pray that we, Generations Church, that we understand what we are called to do and that we live for that, that we live for the Word of God and for the witness we have in our world. Because that's purposeful and meaningful. There's another one. So living for this world, I'm going to do three of these. Living for this world. If you live for this world and don't achieve worldly desires, hardship and suffering have no meaning. If you live for Jesus, you have eternal purpose no matter what you may endure. So if you live here and you, and you win here, that's all you get. But if you try and live here and you get nothing, you get nothing at all. You with me? You can try and get rich and maybe fail and you lose both riches and eternity. You try and get riches, you get riches, that's all you get. But if you set all that aside and say, I'm going to live my life, every day I'm going to get up, and I'm going to try and figure out what Jesus is calling me to do today, you get everything. You win. And you win forever. Because then you can be used for the word and for the mission and for the witness of Christ. Living for this world, we'll do the second one. If you're a parent with this world in mind and your children endure suffering and hardship, you've parented in vain. If you raise your children to be witnesses of the living Jesus, nothing can overcome their purpose. I don't care what degree they get. I mean, in some ways, cool. But what I care is that forever... They live that eternal purpose here and into forever. That Jesus has called us all to deny ourselves, to lay everything down, to take up our cross and follow him. That that needs to be how we parent as well. That we value forever, eternity, the kingdom, more than we value tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Last one, living for the world. If your life is marked with hardship, suffering, illness, death, and pain, but you are living for the word of God, your trials are meaningful, and your life has eternal purpose. I don't say this lightly. If you know my life, you know. You know, my wife isn't here today. And that often isn't. She was able to make our elders retreat with our elders and their wives. It was amazing. It's amazing to have her there. But as we were leading up to it, we weren't sure, to be honest. And if all we live for is this world, then all she's doing is suffering and pain. But if we live for forever, if we're living for Jesus, for his word, for his purpose, then all she is doing has purpose. And it will all make sense one day. I'm going to close with this. Verse 15, then the kings of the earth... And the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? No one escapes judgment, not kings, not wealthy, not slave, not free. They all cry out now as heaven and earth collapse. As they come together in judgment and destruction, they begin to cry, the people on earth begin to cry out, hide us from the wrath of the one who sits on the throne, where we spent our time last week, and from the Lamb, where we spent ourselves last week. Hide us from them. Now there's no hiding from them. Can't hide from God who is collapsing the world. But in their fear and their pain, they say, hide us. Now I'm going to close with this question that we'll answer next week. Verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? They ask, okay, the end, the judgment, all, it's all come. It's right now. Notice that they see God, they see the Lamb, they see Jesus. It is not a question what's going on. And everything is caving in on itself. And they feel the wrath of a holy God that they gave no life to. 
who can stand is their question. That's the focus of next week. But for now, no matter where you are in life, no matter the hardships, struggles, trials, even death that you have, if you are living for Christ, your suffering has meaning. And if you are not, you're going to lose it all anyways. We've all been to a funeral. You can't park the Harley in a coffin. Maybe you can, but you can't use it, all right? Or the Jeep, I know, it cuts both ways. Live for Christ, you have an eternal purpose. Live for now, you got nothing. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, we thank you. It is your word that sets us free. It is your gospel that transforms us. It is you that has had victory and will have victory. It is in you that we are invited to conquer, and it is through you that we can conquer, that we can overcome this world, that we can change our minds about how we live because you have empowered us to do so by your Spirit. Jesus, transform our hearts and our minds. Change us. Cause us to live for you. Like Ezekiel 36 says, that take our hard heart out and give us a heart that can follow you. Wash us with your spirit. Cause us to walk in your ways and to be obedient. We need your help, Lord Jesus. So we pray. We want to be victorious in this world and be with you in the world to come. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.